As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. I'm here in Cornwall at the moment in a rather echoey room, but I hope it's going across okay. Sounds all right to me. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your holiday uh, to to feed our loyal audience a new episode. Um, uh, We're starting a a kind of short series today, aren't we, where we're kind of stepping away from our kind of bread and butter of looking at new developments in science, technology, or kind of news stories or questions, and stepping back and looking at some of the fundamental foundations or doctrines you might say of a kind of christian perspective on the world maybe that some of the christian thinking that has shaped how you and to a lesser extent me kind of talk about ethics and 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 um science and healthcare you know the kind of basic doctrines that are the foundation stones that we that we build our superstructure on yeah i mean it can sound a bit dry and, and theological but i hope as we unpick it uh i can persuade our listeners actually this is something to be amazingly excited about these uh, these rich truths um and uh, and basically what we're going to be looking at in four separate episodes are four foundations uh, which are creation fall redemption and then new creation or actually it's often described consummation uh which is an interesting term but it's one that i've uh, i actually has a lot of truth about it because the whole point about the future plan of the Bible story is that it is a consummation. It's a drawing together, an ultimate fulfillment of everything that was there. I, I've I've uh, subsequently sort of moved away from using this phrase consummation just because it's got these sort of sexual overtones. Uh, which is a pity, really, because I think I think it is a very helpful word. But this idea that there is a future hope, there is a new creation, uh, I, I think that's a, a really important part. So each of these four foundations are important. And we're starting today with um, the beginning, the right place to start, I guess, which is the, the doctrine of creation. Um which you know is right there at the start of the Bible, and is people will be very familiar with you know the Genesis accounts in one Genesis one two three, um, uh, but but your kind of contention, I suppose, is that actually we we don't spend quite enough time as we think we are, and kind of dwelling in this doctrine and, and letting it come to fruition and and undergird our understanding. Yeah, I, I think. What I've come to realize is that each of these four foundations are, in a sense, equally important. And they provide four um, different but internally coherent ways of looking at the world. So, And, and it's a very, very useful heuristic or a, a teaching aid, a framework, which I've used time and time again, um, so that whenever we come across some often quite novel or unexpected issue. I mean, you know, like artificial intelligence, for instance, or uh, gender fluidity or some some kind of unexpected uh, development in our modern world. I've found that this fourfold framework, we start with creation. We look at 
how God has, has made the world and created this particular thing. We then look at fall, how did it go wrong and contaminated? We then look at redemption, the great story of the incarnation, the cross and the resurrection, and finally, this future consummation. <clears throat> and um, I, I use that uh, when I, I first came across it, when John Stott was using it in um, in his preaching and in his book, Issues Facing Christians Today. And ever since I've been, it's been a, a sort of foundation framework for me in my thinking. It's fascinating as well, because um, by coincidence or, you know, not really coincidence, uh, it's a very similar framework actually was a key part of um, the preaching and the approach of a of a, a pastor, a minister at a church I used to attend in, in central London called KXE and, and the vicar there, Pete Hughes, his version of this was creation, decreation, recreation, which was this kind of heuristic is the posh word it's a kind of framework as you say a teaching aid a lens through which we then can examine different parts of scripture and christian tradition uh, and help us kind of fit various sermon series and bits of the bible together so it's clearly an idea i think which is which is spread i don't think john stott invented it as you say it can probably be traced back to some of the earlier church fathers people like augustine in particular um but yeah i think it's it's a helpful way of us stepping back from the the day-to-day maelstrom of issues like something like AI you mentioned, gender fluidity or, um, you know, reproductive technology at the beginning of life and and um, uh, helping us make sure that we're, we're not accidentally, I guess, slipping into a, um, a kind of sub-Christian understanding of, of, of these things. Yes. So I was brought up in the Christian Brethren, which was a... Um... A much more, uh, a much bigger denomination uh, back in the sixties and seventies than it than it is now, um, and uh, they, in particular, had a, a very uh, negative and suspicious uh, view of creation. It, it seemed like everything outside the the true Christian Church was was broken. It was wrecked by evil and by sin. And and that was regarded as the world, and and it was hostile to Christianity. It was it was the terrain of the evil one, and and it was a dangerous source of temptation. It would drag you in, um, and so everything that wasn't focused on Christian activity was regarded as worldly, and it was uh, secondary importance and and a, a dangerous uh, thing. And so the most important thing was to try to keep yourself free from being contaminated by the world and to focus on on Christian worship and on whatever the the local church was doing. Uh, it probably sounds pretty weird to you uh, now, but you know th- this was completely normal for me growing up as a child. Yeah, I mean it, it is it is slightly kooky, particularly I think having kind of heard of other bits and pieces about the brethren as they are today and. They have, they have a reputation, I think, for being quite kind of secluded and closed off and insular and hostile to the outside world. And, you know, some people would say almost at points kind of verging on a sect in terms of their kind of a desire to cut themselves off. And I sense and I guess the sense that, that they and they alone are the kind of true believers, the true Christians and and their their sense of hostility to the outside world extends to a lots of other, you know, big mainstream established denominations as well. But at the same time, I can definitely see notes, elements of of that theology present in the more kind of mainstream conservative evangelicalism that I grew up in, which again is there's that dualism idea of there's us and then there's the world or there's kind of God's kingdom and the world. And and the world is not just, you know, at people actively doing sinful things, but it potentially includes a whole bunch of stuff which might be kind of morally neutral but is as you say is a distraction from the real task of the believer in the church which is you know prayer and bible study and evangelism and and things like that um and that i think that at times can kind of curdle into a suspicion and hostility about the stuff that god has created yeah and our particular uh brand of the brethren took this to quite extreme levels in terms of using music in worship they regarded uh, music 
art, any kind of, of introducing a note of beauty, uh, particularly man-made beauty into, into Christian worship was, was dangerous and worldly. And therefore, uh, we in the uh, weekly meetings, the, the Holy Communion meeting, the breaking of bread, we didn't have any musical instruments, not even a piano or a guitar. Uh, it was in just an unaccompanied singing. A cappella was the only way to worship God. So, you know, as, as somebody who was very, very interested in music and, and you know, an, an amateur musician, I always found this strange. And it's, uh, it's, it was one of the big things that, to be honest, which drew me to All Souls Church as a student. And that was that they uh, were starting an, an orchestra uh, to be used for worship. The idea a full symphony orchestra could actually play in church services and used for worship. But it was not just the music. Behind this was actually a deep theology, a biblical theology, about using music uh, for worship. And, and, of course, that's very much related to the idea of creation, creation theology. Well, could you just flesh that out a little bit for us? Some people might be a bit puzzled. What is the relationship between music and the theology of creation? Well, so the idea is that um, God has put music into the creation. It's something, it's, it's, it's actually his idea. Um, there are all kinds of, you know, the physics of music is quite interesting. The way that strings vibrate and the, the vocal cords vibrate, the way we appreciate harmony, the mathematical relationships between notes, all these things are actually part of the creation. And throughout the scriptures, but particularly in the Psalms, uh, you see how all this created, the created gift of musicianship is to be used to worship God. That, that um, and, and it seems to me that actually fundamentally, this is what music is for. Uh, the reason that God has created music uh, is, is as an expression to allow us to express the deepest um, emotions of our heart back in worship to God. And as, as a musician playing for worship, you know, leading a congregation, using gifts of music and orchestration and harmony to encourage uh, people to sing and to worship from their hearts, I find something incredibly moving and, and a sense of, yes, this is, this is what it's for. This is the rightness of music. Of course, you can use music for all sorts of other things. You can use music to uh, sell soap powder. You can use music to arouse an army uh, mm. to war. You, you, music can be used in lots of different ways, but it seems to me when it is used primarily uh, for worship, there's, there's a rightness about it. This is what it was created for. And what I find really interesting and, and quite fun about this perspective is there's a sense in which that actually God wants us to enjoy the good things he's put in creation. And when we talk about that, we often think about like, oh, look, the sunsets and, you know, that beautiful mountain. And we can look at this and say, wow, what an amazing God made that. And absolutely, that's fantastic. And I do that. And it's great. But I like the idea that actually there's more to creation than just the physical stuff, the atoms, you know, that that, you know, God also there's no reason why, you know, th those two particular notes when played together should make a beautiful, pleasing sound as a chord, as a harmony but God built it into the, the fabric of the atoms of the universe and gave us the capacity to enjoy, to enjoy that. And even beyond simply, you know, yes, we can use that in, in worship, in church, in our private devotionals, but also there's a sense in which actually the rightness of simply making music, even if it's not explicitly Christian music, is also enjoying the beauty in God's creation and saying, are, are this world that God has made is full of beautiful things and it is right and good and proper for us to enjoy taking part in that. Absolutely right. And that for me was this complete liberation. Um, the idea that there wasn't something worldly about enjoying music or becoming better at music or, or investigating it and learning it. That, that, and, and I think actually that happened for many professional musicians that for the first time playing at All Souls as part of a semi-professional, professional quality orchestra allowed them to suddenly uh, discover new meaning in their own 
expertise, you know, that, that uh, and calling and ministry. So, and it, it was not just music. So I, I think uh, there was also a, a rediscovery of, of Christians in all kinds of creative and artistic professions, uh, in the fine arts, in media, in uh, writing and, and so on. Uh, I think that rediscovery of creation theology um, and even in sport. I mean, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned uh, this um, uh, Eric Little. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. People might be familiar with Eric Little from the film Chariots of Fire. He was um, uh, a really fascinating, uh, intriguing person from the first half of the 20th century. He's a Christian guy, Scottish guy, I believe, who... Um, uh, ran for Great Britain in the um, Olympics in the 1920s um, and had this kind of fascinating rivalry with some of the other sprinters at the time. He was a sprinter and it was just one of the best in the world. I think he might have even won a medal, but he kind of became famous because he um, refused to run on Sundays, uh, which he believed should be kind of set apart as a day of rest. And he wanted to go to church and not take part. And then there was a controversy because one of the Olympic finals was on a Sunday. Would they move it for him and blah, 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 blah. And that's what the film is about. And, and then he went on and had a rich life as a missionary in China. Um, but there's an amazing line from from the, the film, Chariots of Fire. I don't know if it's a true thing he ever said, but it, it rings true. And it's always stuck with me, which is where he's trying to talk, explain to someone about, you know, how does he hold intention, his, his Christian faith and his running and he and he says, you know, I believe that God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And that line has always stuck with me because there's in the kind of, you know, conventional view of the world that we were talking about where, you know, it's about being useful and staying out of distractions and worldly things. There's nothing more worldly than just sprinting, right? Just running in a straight line as fast as you can achieves absolutely nothing. Um, and yet, little explains that actually he believes that in god's creative beauty when he pulled knitted together eric little in the womb he gave him the exact right kind of muscle fibers and genetic coding and everything that need that he that made him one of the fastest men in the world and actually god's calling on his life wasn't simply just to go and be a missionary and but it was actually to use this body this fast these fast legs that god had given him and, and just enjoy that in it kind of for no real purpose, just because he enjoys it because God made him fast. Um, so yeah, that's always really stuck with me. And again, it had a kind of liberating effect when you realize that we don't have to be constantly um, crippled by the sense of, am I doing things that are useful, that are productive, that are quote unquote Christian in inverted commas, but actually we can do things that are um, enjoying the beauty of God's creation for its own sake. And, and that's enough. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because that uh, phrase had a big impact on me too. God made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Because I I believe there's a sense in which every single human being can say that. Every, every single human being can say in some way, God made me fast. And therefore, I need to learn what that is because when I do that, I, I feel his pleasure. That there's There's a positive joy in just being who I was meant to be in um in running the race whatever the race is that it's been it's been given to me so just to then uh step back and, and dig a bit deeper into creation theology the beautiful idea is that the creation is not some kind of the uh just arbitrary, cold, logical um, structure, which is the way science and physics tends to regard these days. You know, physicalism regards ultimate matter as basically the most foundational level is just subatomic particles and the equations or the fields which hold everything together. And, uh, and therefore, at their root... Uh, in that way of thinking, matter is is fundamentally impersonal. Whereas the beautiful thing of biblical theology is the idea that actually before creation, there are persons, there are persons in love 
and the father loves the son and the son loves the father and the father loves the spirit and the spirit loves the father. And, and this love has been circulating and intensifying within the very heart of the of the the Godhead. And as the love builds up and it builds up and it builds up, then there is an explosion of love. And, and I think in some ways that's what the Big Bang is. The Big Bang is an explosion of love from the heart of the Trinity. And therefore, everything that we see from galaxies and, and the, the macro structure of the universe down to the most tiny subatomic particles and the mysteries of life and everything is an explosion of love. It, and it therefore reflects the love and the character of God himself. And this is why the author of Genesis keeps has this refrain about God saw what he had made and it was good. It's about saying, because, you know, I remember being really struck when someone was explaining that you have to read, you know, often we read Genesis and we get lost in these very interesting and important debates about creationism versus evolution. We know we've done podcasts about this, but uh, we also have to read, understand that the, the Genesis account is is written in a time when there are lots of competing stories in the ancient Near East world about how stuff came into being, you know, and some of those cultures that surrounded the ancient Israelites had beliefs that, you know, the gods had had a fight and they'd kill one of the gods and then creation was made out of the decaying kind of remains of one of the dead gods or that the gods had had sex and had a baby and that was creation or that, you know, the the gods had cut off part of their own body and turned it into human beings. And and there's always a sense that creation can be born out of conflict, out of rivalry, out of anger, out of death, out of violence. And so what is really profound about the Genesis account is that creation, as you say, is this loving voluntary act. that There was nothingness. And God in eternity past existed totally content in the Trinity with nothing else there. But then because they loved so much, they decided to say, let there be light, let there be stuff, and ultimately let there be people for us to love on. And that's why the, the author keeps coming back to saying, God saw this and God said it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Absolutely. And then, so creation reflects these these four, they're often, these three, they're often called transcendentals, the, the truth, goodness, and beauty. It's interesting that, that trio was really identified by Greek philosophers um, as, as being the transcendentals. But um, as Christian theology developed, it realized that those three uh, encapsulated the, the character and, and the being of God. So, so creation is based on truth. Uh, there's there is a a fundamental unchanging order, and uh, where does that come from, and and why is it upheld? Because it isn't just God winds up the creation and and leaves it. No, every moment the creation, the truth, the continuity, the order of the creation is sustained by God, and and really that's a reflection of His covenant faithfulness that God chooses. God has a covenant, a creation covenant. And he says, I am going to be faithful to this covenant. I'm going to up to this creation. I'm going to uphold it. I'm going to maintain the law of gravity. I'm going to maintain the structure and the order out of love, out of, out, out of my covenant faithfulness, because that's the kind of God I am. And, uh, and, and similarly, not only am I, is God maintaining the physical structures uh, the mathematics, the physics that underlies it all. God is actually holding the moral order. God is defining what is good and has put his goodness, the moral order, his character actually into the creation. So I like to think of it like the grain of wood, you know, that we're, we're called to live our life along this grain, the moral order that is there in the universe. And one of the things that's quite striking when, um, I've read things people, you know, kind of scientists and physicists talking about the order in the universe is is not the the surprising thing is not that um, the surprising thing is that we keep finding that there is universal order and that as we dig down through various levels of subatomic particles that you know you can create these this model of the world based on four fundamental forces that are constants everywhere at all times in all places of the universe 
you know, the speed of light and the weak magnetic force, you know, and I'm not a physicist and I'm on shaky ground here, you know, more of this than I do. But actually, there is no fundamental reason why the universe has to work like that. It could be a chaos. It could be disordered. And yet the more we understand and the more knowledge we accumulate, we actually find that, as you say, the whole everything down to the individual bonds that hold electrons together is ordered and systematic and knowable, fundamentally understandable by us, um, made in the image of the creator. Absolutely. And of course, this is a Christian understanding of why science is possible, why it works. And again, from a physicalist point of view, there's absolutely no reason why a an evolved species on the African savannah whose central nervous system uh, developed in order to be better at finding berries and, and avoiding predators, why that particular central nervous system should be able to work out and comprehend the fundamental structures of the cosmos. I mean, that is a complete mystery. Uh, I, I just, you know, for a physicalist scientist, it's just an amazing lucky fluke, like everything else, just a lucky fluke. Uh, Christianity gives a, a, a much more intellectually coherent and profound explanation. God made the universe to be comprehensible and he made human beings to be able to comprehend them because we are made in his image. Our, our puny minds can reflect the mind of the creator. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. So that's truth and order. Um, what about goodness? Yeah, so goodness, you know, it's only recently I've realised that the profound significance of the passage in Exodus 33 and 34, where God, Yahweh, the, the God of the covenant, the God of the Jewish people, reveals himself to Moses. And he says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And then he proclaims the name of Yahweh. And the name, of course, in Hebrew thinking, encapsulates the being, the character, the essence. And he says, God, full of compassion and grace, long-suffering and rich in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those, there are five things there, which, and they, it seems to me, in that passage, God himself declares what his goodness consists of. Uh, and they're remarkable. They're all relational terms, compassion, grace, steadfast love, faithfulness, long suffering. And I think the idea is that God's goodness is enshrined in creation. Everywhere we, we turn in creation, we ultimately we see goodness. We see God's uh um, goodness and I, there's an old Hebrew proverb which I love, which says that he who gave us teeth will provide us with bread. In other words, God creates uh, 
needs, desires. He creates uh, mechanisms precisely so he can satisfy them, precisely so that he can give us joy. And that's part of his goodness. Mm. And there's something really heartwarming about this idea that, you know, God can't help himself. He is so good. It is so rich in his character that everything he touches, everything he makes, you know, smacks of that goodness. It, it is shot through like a stick of Brighton rock with that goodness, you know, and, and you see that in passages, you know, where it talks about, you know, God cannot tell a lie, you know, God, um, it's that God is um, so faithful to to his character that everything he touches kind of turns to gold. Yeah, it's it's a very very rich and profound, and as you say, heartwarming. It, it it's it's the way he is, and and actually, I've come to realize in many ways this is what we mean by the beauty of God. To to be drawn to the beauty of God, you know, I used to think that was something like a sunset. You know, it was like it was seeing. Uh, glory in terms of transcendence or something like fireworks going off. That, that's the beauty of God. But increasingly, I see actually it's much more to do with the, the beauty of his character. It's the way you're drawn to someone else just because they're such a wonderful person. That's the beauty of God. We, we, we find we are just drawn to his goodness um, because it's beautiful. And that's, you know, we would argue, I guess, why even people who have no belief in God or no knowledge of God cannot help but be compelled by the beauty of a sunset or, you know, the goodness of the love of a mother for her child or whatever else that God has made. You know, even if you aren't aware of the creator, the goodness of what he has created shines through um, unmistakably. Absolutely right. And, and of course, this is also this idea of common grace, that God's goodness and, and grace is not just uh, limited to his people, but it, he just loves to give it to everyone to, um, because that's the kind of God he is, a, a giving God, the, the graciousness. Of it. He, he doesn't say, well, you know, do you deserve food today? Do you deserve my sun to shine on you? He just gives it away. It's free. Mm. And um, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. <laughs> exactly. And uh, and then finally, there's, there's beauty, isn't there? That um, this astonishing thing that everywhere we see, everywhere we look, we see beauty. You know, I often think that, you know, the, the, the writers of the Bible had no concept of the beauty of the cosmos, which the James Webb telescope is now <laughs> revealing. They had no concept of the beauty of what the microscope shows about, about the wonders. They had no concept of what it was like underneath the ocean to see um, life in all its, its glory and so on. Everywhere, or, what, or the way that a baby was being formed, you know, with a four-dimensional ultrasound scan. The, the, and yet they still poured out their hearts. Uh, so how much more do we moderns have awareness of the extraordinary beauty everywhere we go we find the beauty of god i sometimes think that you know in those medieval cathedrals you'd get a stonemason on the top of a very long ladder or scaffolding you know hundreds of feet above the ground and he'd spend months hacking out with his chisel this most beautiful rose uh, out of stone and making it absolutely perfect and beautiful. And then he would get down his ladder and, and, and go down to the bottom and nobody, nobody would ever see it. Why did he make it beautiful? It was for the joy of creation. The fact that nobody was going to see it didn't matter. And, and I just think that reflects the character of God. You know, everywhere we turn, God has made it beautiful, even if nobody ever saw it. Absolutely. I mean, I was struck by this once when, at a moment when I was in a snowstorm and, and I was wearing a dark black coat and a tiny individual snowflake landed on my coat and I'd, you know, peered in and saw this incredible kind of crystalline structure and this beautiful symmetry in multiple levels. And it, and it gradually melted away after a few seconds. And I was suddenly struck by, you know, just on the street that I'm on, there might be a billion of those individual snowflakes falling right now, of which 999 million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine are just going to turn to dirty slush without anyone appreciating its incredible fractal beauty 
and yet God lavishes every hour of every day a snowstorm somewhere where each individual flake is this kind of work of art and there's this kind of reckless extravagance to to God's creation which yeah really moved me actually yeah and, and I think it's I think it is such a powerful theme and such a biblical theme because because this is this is everywhere and and so first of all you know this is a huge problem for atheists if they're if they're intellectually honest this is such a massive problem because it is utterly inexplicable uh, this the manifold truth goodness and beauty everywhere they look in creation on which all their science is built it's just random it's meaningless it's a fluke there is no fundamental there's no one behind there to worship uh you just simply go wow um that's nice it's done... <laughs> isn't that amazing what a fluke <laughs> and yet uh and yet you know what strikes me is that that we are called to, as Christians, we're called to say, wow. I, I, I like this idea. There are only three fundamental prayers. There's thank you, there's please, and there's wow. Um, and this wow of worship that just says, isn't it amazing? And I just want to express the wow back to you, God. And I think it's it is astonishing, you know, that in Revelation chapter four, you get this peek into the throne room of God, and there are three great songs going on in the throne room of God, and songs which are going to go on into eternity. And the first song is about existence. It says, "Praise to you, God, because you existed, you you were, you are, and you are to come. It's, sort of, it's the fundamental existence of God. But the second great song is in Revelation 4, 11, and it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So in other words, it seems, you know, this this wow, this song of creation is going to go on for eternity. We'll never exhaust the worship that is based on creation. You never go beyond creation. You never get more spiritual um, and move beyond creation. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, actually, if we're honest, a lot of how modern evangelical churches work is that we actually do move on beyond the doctrine of creation. We, we think this is a, fun, a great theme for Sunday school. You know, and I've got <laughs> books I read to my daughter right now, which are all about, you know, God made the whale and God made the mountain. And isn't that amazing? Wow, God, we love you. But for honest, we then do, as we go into our teenage years, put that behind us and move on to the real meat and drink, you know, which is complex theological equations about how atonement works and, you know, the reality of sin. And and let's, you know, let's start speaking about the end times. That's exciting and confusing and and we we do put it behind us. Do you think that's a shame? I do. I, th I think it's an absolute tragedy. Um, and I'll tell you something else which I think is utterly bizarre. And that is, if you um, go on to the media, you know, both television, films and so on, you can still find these most amazing nature documentaries. You know, everything from Attenborough onwards, you'll find... You know, people, you know, documentaries on cosmology and on the beauties of galaxies. You'll find documentaries on the underwater world. You'll have documentaries on life in the womb. You'll find documentaries, you name it, everywhere. And what's more, you know, this, the track has this kind of uh, worshipful, almost awe-inspired, you know, isn't it? A sense of, of wonder and awe. Just look at this. Isn't this amazing? We, we've managed to put a camera inside this nest and just look at what's going on or whatever it is. <laughs> and so, so our, the secular media is, is actually has a lot of this worship theology and, and a sense of awe and a sense of wow. And even though the, the vast majority of the people who are making these documentaries, as far as I know, don't believe in a personal creator at all. They, they may believe in sort of nature with a capital N, 
they don't really have any theology. And so when we go to the people who do actually believe in a personal creator, who do actually believe this stuff, you walk into their churches and what do you find? Nothing of that. You, I'm afraid <laughs> all you get is a whole diatribe about sin and evil. You think, really? What went wrong? Do you think this is a, you know, dare I say, a reformation problem? You know, has, do you think Protestantism got so focused on, you know, the word and the printing press and the intellectualism and studying the scriptures that we we became very kind of, you know, I don't know if it's right or left brain people, but whichever side of the brain does the kind of, you know, the thinking and the writing and the pontificating. And we've lost touch with our kind of artistic, creative, imaginative, spontaneous side. And so we just struggle to to see how to to um, integrate that kind of awe, awe-inspiring wowness of nature into our worship. It's certainly not the Reformation. I, th- I think, uh, to be honest, you're completely wrong there. That is a misreading of the Reformation because, why do I say that? Well, Bach was a, a classic Reformation artist and craftsman who was who put solo Deo Gloria on all of his manuscripts. I mean, um, the Reformation was associated with this, with a, a great deal of, of art, which was, uh, which was there for expressing God's music. No, where it all goes wrong is with the Enlightenment. Uh, and, and I think many people have, and I myself included, think that modern evangelicalism is much more influenced by Enlightenment thinking than it realises. It, take, it takes an Enlightenment approach to the Scriptures um, and, and, and it's the Enlightenment which, which tends to push away uh, the importance of beauty, the importance of, um, uh, and, 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 and has a much more emphasis on mechanical, uh, cognitive processing. Um, and I, I'm afraid, I, I think, that we've lost a lot of, we're much more affected by by those kind of thinking than we realize yeah that makes a lot of sense um i have to say though as i think about it i think it's important not to paint a caricature of this because as i think about it i think in my kind of adult lifetime last 10 15 years of being an evangelical uh i think there is there is the seed the tides are turning on this one i think there is an increasing recognition of the importance of engaging with art and beauty and creative creativity. I know I remember thinking, you know, even when I was a student, I was quite involved in, in our Christian union that met on campus. And that was part of this long tradition in Britain, um, in, in movement called UCCF, which is all about, you know, Christian students gathering together to evangelize to people. And while we were there, we did a, we did, um, we would gather all the universities in London where I studied would gather together and do a big, uh, like a mission week where we'd put on events, um, invite non-Christians and have a kind of guest speaker come and share. And, and these typically classically would be kind of apologetics you know, they would be, you know, has science disproved God and all that stuff. But one of the years I was there, and this is, you know, over 10 years ago, they had a speaker come and just do a series of talks looking at films. And they would take a secular film. I think they did Inception. They did Lord of the Rings um, and say, you know, what do we appreciate about this film? Why, what does this film speak to us? And then quite skillfully and creatively use that as a foundation to say, you know, well, this draws out these values. And where do these values come from? You know, or why are human beings so interested in self-sacrifice as a motif in literature and art? And where does that come from? And and actually use these 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 create these pieces of creative fiction as a as a platform for doing evangelism, which I thought was quite interesting and exciting and innovative. So I think there are signs and of progress. I think signs of maybe moving beyond the kind of sterile, arid, kind of hypercognitive, mechanistic approach to faith that we're talking about. That might be maybe more of a twentieth century phenomenon. Yeah, I I, th- I think you're right. Now, of course, I don't want to caricature, uh, but but I would just point out that the use of films and so on that's much more to do with human culture, isn't it? It's, it's much, I, I would still maintain that Christians, evangelical Christians, and, and probably wider Protestant uh, 
Christians genuinely just seem to massively underplay the natural um the natural mm. world um it it's very rarely a theme in um in uh, modern worship isn't it although having said that i've just remembered that the 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 great song indescribable um you know mm. which which is a wonderful um you do you remember the line i've got the line you saw the stars <laughs> and you know them by name um yeah, yeah. you know i i I think, you know, it is there, but wouldn't it be wonderful to have a whole church service which was filled with images from the James Webb telescope, the, the <laughs> beauty, and which, and which where somebody who knew about cosmology just explained what these pictures show and about the mystery and the wonder and the structure of the universe and that all this is held in by God's own uh, plans. He saw it and knew it, and it's an expression of God's love. Do you think the other angle about why our flavour of the church has kind of struggled with this it is because we are so focused on saying, yes, creation is good, but it's also riven with sin and, and, and the fall. And that is, you know, an important biblical theme. I know it's the, the subject of the next conversation in this series, but I do think that the fundamentally the reason why evangelicals struggle with this perhaps is because we're so... Uh, driven to to place grace emphasis on the fact that actually we you know we don't want to worship god through through nature because that feels kind of neo-pagan and we don't want to kind of celebrate all that we do and create because we're aware that a lot of what humans produce is is bitter and twisted and broken and wrong i'm sure you're right but i, I still think it's misguided because you know for modern people you know they when they go to, if they do ever go to church and all they hear is a diatribe about sin and evil, um, you know, that's no great surprises. I knew that anyway. I mean, I only have to switch on the internet. I only have to go on my news feed and I just see this constant litany of terrible evil. Um, and so, you know, we talked about it before, but what we've got at the moment is a great wave of pessimism, despair, hopelessness you know, mental health issues and so on. What modern people need to hear is some of bit of what we've been talking about, about actually, you know what? There's underlying all this. There's amazing truth. There's amazing goodness. There's amazing beauty. That's the message of Christianity. Um, so if I came to church and that's what I heard, I'd go, blimey, that's a different story. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> and I guess a final, a final perspective on this is, is that at least for me, it's a different story for you, I guess. But, you know, for my whole life, the message about the creation has been, it's wonderful, but it's broken. We're killing it. It's dying. You know, climate change and carbon emissions is wreaking havoc. And the key kind of narrative around creation is not, oh my gosh, it's so wonderful. What a wonderful God. Isn't it beautiful? Wow. It is, oh my gosh, it's dying. What a terrible thing we've done. We, How can we stop mm. this? What, you know, how have we failed? And I think in that context, maybe it becomes harder for Christians who are kind of compelled by the urgency of the climate crisis and guilt, feel, you know, an understandable sense of guilt and shame about how human beings have wrecked it to then in the same breath say, but gosh, that sunset was stunning, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. But I, I think there's a great sadness as well, because it's it doesn't take into account the extraordinary resilience and dynamism of God's creation. Um, again, this kind of nostalgic sense of despair. And again, we talked about it before. I, I, I don't think it's helpful. I think, I think it's actually, it's, it's damaging. I mean, just a final comment though. And one of the things that John Stott used to say is he, he said, of course, you know, as a Christian, you can never know fully everything about the creation, but wouldn't it be a good idea if every single Christian chose just one area, one small area of the creation, and actually tried to become an expert in that little area so that they could appreciate more about the incredible beauty and wonder of what God has made? And he said, and for me, it's ornithology. I just love the way that God has created birds, and I go around the world um, as well as 
taking, <laughs> speaking and, and, and leading. I also take the opportunities to go on um, safaris and bird watching trips. And I think that's a great idea. The, the idea that each one of us should have something where we really just celebrate the goodness of what God has made as a, as a kind of way of accepting what God has given. You know, if you're a parent, I'm sure you've already had this experience, Tim, you know, and you've labored long and hard on some wonderful gift for your lovely little progeny. And then eventually there comes the great moment and you hand over the gift and all you get is, oh, thanks, Dad, what's next? You know, there's, there's that. Which I'm sure it's never tension. happened to you, Dad, because everything never. you've ever received has been, um, has been fantastic. So, uh, but you know, isn't that a picture of like God Himself who creates this loving attention, all this beauty of the world, only to find that His people aren't that fussed? Actually, God, you know, thanks a lot, but there are more important things for me to be concerned about. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It's true. Well, yeah, well, there's a, there's a good encouragement. Then, what can we what can we dig in deeper to? see you know what are we going to become experts in so that we I guess for you it would be the kind of fragility and yet awesome beauty of the newborn human baby several weeks premature yeah I mean absolutely there is something about that uh I'm also you know I I have more than one I do have an amateur interest in astronomy and cosmology and from time to time read astronomy books um so I I think uh, and I do find, you know, I, I have to say, reading a book about the extraordinary uh, miracle and coincidences that go, went into the formation of the planet and the formation of, le- of, of life on Earth. At the end of this book, uh, I was filled with more sense of wonder and worship towards the sovereign God who had been supervising these processes for more than five billion years on the planet Earth uh, than I did most times <laughs> at a Christian worship service, you know, science can move me to a greater sense of worship than, uh, than many Christian services. And, and I, I would love to see more of that sense of worship coming into, uh, for, for the creation, coming into uh, our natural Christian worship. Good. Well, I think we probably talked for long enough. Um, that was part one of this new series looking at the doctrine of creation. We're going to pick up, not immediately next week, but over the coming months, we're going to come back and dip into this again uh, and work through those other kind of three major themes, fall, redemption and, and new creation and how they kind of flesh out this grand narrative of the scriptures that we've been talking about. I hope you found that helpful and interesting. Um, please do, yeah, do come back to us with your reflections, your thoughts, your feedback um would love to hear hear what you're thinking um you can email us uh, molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk you can reach me on twitter or x or whatever it's called these days if it still exists um i'm at t-s wyatt w-y-a-t-t um uh, and also if you go to dad's website johnwyatt.com there's plenty more things to read and to listen to and to watch that might stimulate your thinking and hopefully your worship of the great God we serve. Um, So thanks so much for listening and and we'll speak to you again next week with a new episode. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.